A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. This episode is going to sound a little bit different. In our story, as we've been telling it, we're in hour 7, 4 to 5 a.m. on Sunday, April 19th, 2020. Back at the beginning of episode four, we told you that we simply don't know what the gunman was doing for several hours overnight. We've spent some of our time in recent episodes exploring the gunman's past, his relationships, and trying to figure out what police were doing during the search. And before this episode is over, we'll be back to port pick and back to our timeline. But first, we're going to take you back more than a decade. We're going to take you to New Brunswick to explore a pivotal relationship in the gunman's life. It's a lot to take in, but trust me, it's worth it. On November 30th, 2009, more than 10 years before the shooting spree, Gabriel Wartman rented a dumpster from Capital Waste Disposal in Kingsley, just outside of Fredericton. He had driven more than four hours from his home in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, to clean out the apartment of a business partner and friend who died suddenly a few weeks earlier. Tom Evans left him specific instructions in his will to publish his pre-written obituary in the Sunday edition of the New York Times, to hold a wake for friends, acquaintances, and family with up to $500 of food and strong drink paid for by his estate, and to bury his cremated remains at sea with a dram of Irish whiskey in the old Sow Whirlpool in the Bay of Fundy. Tom left everything to the man he called his dear friend. On paper, the estate appeared to consist of little more than some tools, an old sailboat, and the personal effects of a man whose law career was ruined by his criminal behavior. But that's not the whole story. It's more complicated than that. And uh, when I found out he was friendly with Gabriel, I said to his parents, get Gabriel the hell away from Tom Evans. He'll only get him in trouble. I said, he's a crook. When Gabriel Wartman settled his friend's estate, he returned to Nova Scotia with hundreds of thousands of dollars and a semi-automatic rifle he would use to terrorize a quiet coastal community a decade later. I'm your host, Sarah Ritchie, and this is 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre. Episode 7, Origins. As you know, we've been investigating not only what happened that horrible weekend in April, but also how this shooting spree happened. What led to it? Who was the man behind it? And this relationship with Tom Evans may be the key to help us answer some of the questions we've had for months. How and where did the gunman get all of those weapons? And why did a denturist in Nova Scotia seem to have so much money? Our investigation has led us to hundreds of pages of documents from courts in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, property records, corporate records. It's a tangled web, which I'll unravel in this episode with the help of my colleagues, Alex Kress and Brian Hill. They often say to solve a mystery, you've got to follow the money. So let's start there. The gunman's estate was valued at $2.1 million after the shooting spree. This is according to documents filed in Nova Scotia Probate Court. 
His six properties in Portapique and Dartmouth were worth about $1.2 million. An appraiser estimated his household goods as being worth about $3,700. But remember, everything inside the warehouse and the cottage in Portapique was burned, so that wouldn't include his collection of motorcycles and dirt bikes, for example. He had just over $40,000 in the bank. He also owned three corporations, including Atlantic Denture Clinic. Those were valued at about $128,000. And then there was the cash. You may remember in episode four, we told you Wartman cashed out some investments at the end of March. He took $475,000 to Portapique. It was buried, according to the court documents, at his cottage. Those documents also say that he asked his common-law partner to bring more cash from their home in Dartmouth to Portapique. She told the police she thought there was about fifty or $60,000 in different denominations. Police actually found much more when they went looking. $705,000 in cash. That's a difference of about $170,000, and police haven't said where they think that came from. A number of people who knew the gunman told police after the shootings that he was very wealthy and that everyone knew it. Some said he was a millionaire, which, of course, we now know is true. But he was a denturist who owned two practices in Nova Scotia. So how was this possible? It just didn't seem to add up. According to the Government of Canada's Job Bank website, salaries for a denturist in Ontario top out at about $112,000 a year, those numbers are from 2016, and they are an estimate. There are no numbers for Nova Scotia, but this gives us a general idea. We've been told that Wartman was making a lot more than that as a denturist. A family friend said he had a lucrative arrangement making dentures for people in prison at one point. We tried to verify that with Correctional Service Canada by asking if Wartman or any of his companies had any contracts with them dating back to 1999. They said they didn't have any record of contracts under any of those names, but Correctional Service Canada only keeps its records for six years, so we don't actually know for sure if he used to do this kind of work or how much it was worth. His uncle Glenn and a close family friend have each said the gunman did under-the-table denture work, too. He got welfare cases. Okay. paid him cash. He never declared it on income tax. He loved it. That's where he made all his money. Police say in court documents that another of the gunman's uncles told them everything was about money for Wartman and that he talked about it all the time. This uncle said he was always thinking of ways to beat the system, ways to screw Revenue Canada. Glenn has a lot of stories that paint a picture of how his nephew was obsessed with wealth and status. He took any chance he got to make a buck, Glenn said, or to save one. Gabriel never paid his way into a theater. He used to take Lisa and me to the show, and he'd walk in and not pay. Glenn said he'd bring an old popcorn bag to the movies and have it refilled for free. He said Wartman was materialistic like this from a young age. There were many people who told police in the initial days after the shootings that the gunman was wealthy and talked about money often and bragged about his collection of motorcycles— and there have been a lot of rumors and speculation about how he made that money. He's been called a crook, a scammer, and an opportunist, even by his own family. 
We've been investigating what that means as we try to understand where he got the cash and the guns. And the answers seem to point us back to his relationship with Tom Evans. So let's spend a little time getting to know who Tom was. In an affidavit Gabriel Wartman filed in New Brunswick court in 2010, he said he and Tom had been friends since childhood. To be clear, this was since Wartman's childhood. Tom was actually 19 years older than him. He knew the Wartman family through Glenn, who said they were roommates for a time in their early 20s. Over the years, Tom remained close with some of the family. He's a friendly person. People liked him. And um, my family liked him. My mother really liked him. Tom could be very charming and charismatic, but he could rub people the wrong way, too. Glenn said he was smart, but he could also be arrogant, a bit obnoxious. Glenn said that his own relationship with Tom soured over the years, and he outgrew the friendship. He moved to Alberta, and Tom went to the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton, where he became a lawyer and passed the bar in 1980. Tom's obituary said that in addition to his law degree, he had a Bachelor of Business Administration, a Bachelor of Education, and a Master's in Education from UNB. In the early 1980s, he also went to the University of Detroit and got a Juris Doctorate. But his law career was short-lived, and it was marked with controversy and conflict. Tom Evans was a memorable man by all accounts. We've spoken with lawyers who practiced in Fredericton at the time who called him a character, devious, entertaining as hell, and a cancer on the law society. One lawyer said he remembered Tom having a cell phone before anyone else. It was the size of a briefcase. Another said Tom liked to shake his fist at authority, especially the police, and that he ripped off legal aid by inflating his billings. In July of 1983, Tom was featured in an article in the local newspaper, The Daily Gleaner. It explains that he had started a storefront legal business. It features a photo of Tom standing in front of a window with one of those plastic signs displaying a list of prices. It looks like the kind you'd see at a corner store, not a law office. An initial meeting with Tom was free, and the costs were low. $30 for a simple will, $250 for an uncontested divorce. The Law Society at the time encouraged lawyers to charge twice that. Tom told the reporter he wanted to make legal services available to people with mid-range incomes, anyone who made too much money to qualify for legal aid but wasn't wealthy and felt they couldn't afford a lawyer. He wanted to help them. He also said the Law Society wasn't doing enough to make sure people knew their rights, that they could initiate a small claims action on their own with no lawyer, for example. But Tom only practiced law for just shy of a decade. So he resigned on November 9, 1990. So and in those days, it's different now, but uh, if somebody submitted their resignation, uh, at least our, as part of our membership, uh, our, our board or, or the law study didn't have any choice, they had to accept their resignation. Now there's a, a provision that uh, council has discretion to accept resignation and they wouldn't accept it if there's a discipline matter ongoing. That's Mark Richard, the current executive director of the Law Society of New Brunswick. He walked us through Tom's rather extensive file. Tom was investigated by the Law Society a number of times over a range of issues, including criminal charges and convictions. 
1987, he was convicted of four counts of supplying alcohol to a minor. And according to his defendant history, each of those convictions carried a $250 fine. In September of that same year, he was convicted of careless use of a firearm in a bizarre incident involving drunk men, five guns, and a Bible camp. Based on the court documents, here's what happened. Tom met two British Army soldiers at a club in Fredericton on July 3rd, 1987. The three went to his place that day, and the next day they decided to go out on his sailboat. They started packing up at around noon, bringing with them two 223 caliber rifles, a 22 caliber rifle, a 12-gauge shotgun, a skeet shooter, and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. The three set sail at around 2 p.m. on July 4th. They headed to Swan Creek Lake, which is a small lake just south of the St. John River. It's situated on military land, part of Canadian Forces Base Gagetown. They went looking for a British military rest and recreation camp. According to the court documents, that camp was on the eastern shore of the lake, and just across the water, tucked around a little cove and hidden by a point of land, was a Bible camp where 97 children under the age of 14 were spending the weekend. At around 8 p.m., Tom and his friends apparently saw a light at the Bible camp. They got to the area of this British camp at around 8.30, and then all three of them started firing guns toward the lake. The site of the British camp where Tom and the soldiers were is about 600 meters away from the Bible camp. The court documents note that those 223 caliber rifles have a range nearly five times that, 2,900 meters, and that bullets, when they hit water, can speed up or change directions. Across the lake and through the trees at the Bible camp, adults reported hearing gunfire that evening, bullets whistling by and branches breaking off of the trees. The children were taken to higher ground in a hasty evacuation. Military police were called in, and when they arrived, they found a boat with unloaded guns in it, along with 197 spent casings and 50 live rounds. No one was there. It was around 10.15 p.m. when Tom and the soldiers met up with the military police. No one was hurt. The two soldiers were fined but not charged. Tom was charged with unlawful use of a firearm without reasonable precaution. Notes about the case say Tom didn't argue with the Crown's version of the facts. He said three people should have known better, and he pleaded guilty. He was handed a one-year suspended sentence, a year's probation, and a year-long weapons ban. No jail time. The Law Society had launched an investigation when Tom was charged with supplying alcohol to minors earlier that year and decided criminal convictions amounted to conduct unbecoming of a lawyer— so in March 1987, Tom was actually suspended for a year, unable to practice law. He was only back to work for about a year after that before he was suspended again for a more serious crime. He sexually assaulted a boy. According to court records in April 1990, two teenage boys were arrested for being drunk in Fredericton. One of the boys called Tom, who was a friend. He got them released and took them to his place an apartment on Aberdeen Street. In his decision, the judge said Tom was in a position of trust, that he stayed sober, supplied the boys with alcohol in an admitted attempt to seduce the victim. And when someone called the house looking for the victim, 
Tom lied about where the boy was. The trial judge found that Tom did not honestly believe the boy consented. Tom Evans was convicted of two counts of providing alcohol to minors and of sexual assault. He appealed his conviction and sentence to the province's highest court. The appeal court judges said that his plan to seduce the victim was premeditated and upheld a sentence of three months in jail. Several people we've spoken to have said that Tom had a reputation for being a predator of young boys and that they thought it was possible this was not the only time he did something like this. That conviction was the end of Tom's legal career. The Law Society suspended him in the spring of 1990 after he was charged and planned to investigate whether he should be disbarred after the trial. Four days before he was convicted, however, Tom resigned and the Law Society had no jurisdiction to finish investigating or to disbar him. Since then, the Law Society has changed its rules. Now, individuals can't stop an investigation by resigning. In 1994, Tom received pardons for three of his convictions, the careless use of a firearm in 1987, two violations of the Income Tax Act in the same year, and the sexual assault in 1990. But according to documents from the National Parole Board, by 2005, he had been convicted of another offense, and those pardons were revoked. All of this got us wondering, how was Tom making a living for those 19 years between 1990 and 2009 if he couldn't be a lawyer? In the obituary that Tom wrote for himself, he said he was a pilot and an electrician. He also founded a property rental company, and depending on who you ask, he may have owned a couple of apartment buildings in Fredericton. My colleague Brian Hill and I have poured over hundreds of pages of corporate and property records and court documents in this investigation. They've revealed some of the answers, and they have to do with Gabriel Wartman. The first real link we found between these two men was a company called Northumberland Investments Incorporated. So Brian, let's start with that. Why did we start looking into this company? So the company was first mentioned in some of the documents released by police. These were applications to get search warrants for uh, Wartman's properties, as well as some of the, the well, his businesses, and uh, as well as his cars, cell phone, computers, those sorts of things. And what we saw was that Wartman had a number of companies. Northumberland Investments, Inc. was one of those. We didn't really understand why he had these companies, and we, we looked into that. What's the connection then between Tom Evans and Northumberland Investments? Well, it's it goes back a long way. Um, so corporate records show that the company was actually started by Tom Evans and long before the shooting spree ever happened. So the corporate documents show that in 1984, Evans started Northumberland Investments with a Fredericton real estate broker named Sybil Rennie. And the company was essentially a, a rental property company. So they purchased a building, an apartment building on Northumberland Street, the same name as the company, and they rented out apartments there. And the the two, Sybil Rennie and Tom Evans, had mortgages on that property valued at about $160,000. And then that relationship or the business relationship sort of evolved. And what we see through these corporate records is that by the mid-1990s, Gabriel Wartman was also involved 
in the company. And that's where we really start to connect the dots between the two of them and that, that relationship. So in 1997, Wartman purchases the apartment building where Evans had lived for years. Uh, that's also adjacent to the apartment building that Evans and Rennie had bought a decade earlier or more than a decade earlier. So they're starting to essentially amass properties in this area of Fredericton, which are owned on paper, at least, by Northumberland Investments. But by the mid-1990s, what we're seeing is that Wartman is increasingly involved. We also see in these court records, we also see that Wartman essentially takes control of Northumberland Investments at this same time. These records showed Wartman was in control of the company, but they didn't tell us how that happened. In the meantime, there had been media reports saying the gunman inherited Northumberland Investments and the Fredericton apartment buildings from Tom. We couldn't find anything that proved this happened or disproved it. We really wanted to see Tom's will, but it didn't seem to exist. And then we got this stack of seemingly unrelated court documents. We'd already proven the link between the two men through the corporate records, but we wanted to to see more. And so we were essentially going back to the courts in New Brunswick uh, almost daily and saying we want to see more of these records about Tom Evans, anything about Gabriel Wardman. We got back a bunch of court files uh, that were submitted by Gabriel Wardman to a court in New Brunswick around a lawsuit that had been filed against Evans. So essentially, we've got all of these documents submitted to the courts by Wartman shortly after Evans' death, and one of them was Tom Evans' will. Evans refers to Wartman as uh, his dear friend, and he leaves him everything that he owns and uh, provides, you know, as you know, these instructions for him. And I think that it shows a lot. It really speaks to the relationship between the two men. But beyond that, the documents that Wartman submitted show his claim to the company, Northumberland Investments, and his claim over these properties. And so we really see uh, that the business side of, of the relationship as well. Right. These documents told us a lot more about their relationship. We're going to talk more about the lawsuit in a moment because it's really interesting. But first, Brian, what do we know about how Wartman came to own Northumberland Investments? A lot, but not a lot. We have a receipt. It's a handwritten receipt uh, from 1996, uh, written by Gabriel Wartman and issued to Sybil Rennie, a real estate broker from Fredericton, who started the company with Tom Evans uh, in 1984. And that exchange, essentially, $100 cash in exchange for the shares of the company was the deal. That's how uh, Gabriel Wartman came to control Northumberland Investments. But, you know, what's interesting about that is that at the time, the company, as we've said, owned another apartment building in Fredericton, which, you know, had a value of at least $160,000. I mean, those were the mortgages that were out on that property uh, more than a decade earlier. And so this company changed hands for $100, but it had in excess of $150,000 in assets, maybe more. This seemed like an unusual deal. 
We've tried to find Sybil Rennie or someone who knew her to answer our many questions about that sale. I'm not actually sure if she's still alive. Her realty company was dissolved in 1998, according to corporate records. A phone number we found for her no longer works. We just haven't been able to reach her or anyone in her family to ask about this. Brian, let's go back to the story of that lawsuit, the reason we have these documents in the first place, and talk about what happened there. So in 2005, about four years before Tom died, he, he was sued uh, by a, an insurance company. And after working as a lawyer, uh, Tom worked as an electrician. And he essentially was a handyman, as we know. And he, he, he'd done some work in this apartment building in Fredericton. Uh, he left a 500-watt lamp turned on in an attic. And according to the court records, uh, fire marshal determined that that caused a house fire. The insurance company paid the property owner more than $200,000 in damages uh, because of the fire. And then the insurance company went after Tom. But that lawsuit dragged on for years and didn't conclude before he died. So when, when Tom Evans died, this lawsuit was essentially still pending. The insurance company then went after his estate, and that's when Gabriel Wartman got involved as the executor of his estate. And so that's where we see these documents coming into play. That's why we have these documents. It's essentially an effort by Gabriel Wartman to prove his ownership on those properties. We see this trail going back years, decades between the two men, and Wartman himself submits all of this paperwork uh, claiming that, among other things, that, that Tom was broke at the time of his death, that he, that he had nothing. The company, the insurance company that was coming after uh, Evans for this money, ended up dropping the case and actually paid Wartman $1,500 for his legal expenses. Why did the company drop this case? Well, because Essentially, there was nothing more for them to pursue here. Uh, once Evans died and they were going after the estate, they sought a court order that would have prevented Wartman from selling Northumberland Investments, which owned the properties that they were trying to recoup their money from. Um, or if he did sell the properties, they wanted the courts to prevent him, prevent Wartman from moving that money out of the province so that they could potentially get get it. But before this case could ever go to a hearing, Wartman sold the buildings to a local real estate developer and moved the money out of the province to Nova Scotia. And it was shortly after that that the, the case was dropped. When you read the documents Wartman submitted in court, it appears that he and Tom were never actually in business together. In his own words, quote, at no time since I acquired Northumberland Investments did Tom Evans have an interest, beneficial or otherwise, in that corporation, end quote. It seems the insurance company certainly didn't believe that. Well, not, not, certainly not in the way that they pursued him uh, or, or the way in which they pursued the estate. They believed that the, the buildings were owned by, uh, by Tom Evans, and there were other people who we've spoken with who also thought that. So... That was definitely what they thought. But what we see in these records is kind of the opposite, that, that it was Wartman, in fact, who owned the properties outright. 
or at least Northumberland Investments owned the properties and Wartman owned Northumberland Investments. And so in the end, Wartman made, after paying lawyers and paying off his mortgage and other expenses like that, Wartman ended up with a little more than $230,000 from selling those properties in February 2010. The way Wartman characterized it in these court documents, it sounds like he held on to these two apartment buildings for years, essentially to help out a friend who was working for him. And then his friend died, and he had nothing tying him to Fredericton, so he sold the buildings and moved on. In that affidavit, Wartman said he didn't know about the fire Tom caused in 2005 or the litigation that had been ongoing for four years. He included a copy of Tom's will, which said Tom left him everything. But he told the court Tom left him essentially nothing. An old sailboat that he sold for $500, tools and personal belongings he took to the dump, and a bank account with $172, which he paid to the Canada Revenue Agency. But this isn't the full picture. We've been able to learn more about their personal relationship through people who knew them. I first heard of Tom from a family friend who was close with the Wartmans for some time, and we've agreed not to use his name because he said he's worried about upsetting Paul Wartman, Gabriel's father. So we're going to call him Adrian. That's my co-producer, Alex Kress. You heard from her back in episode four. I don't know exactly when Tom and Gabriel Wartman first met, but Wartman's Uncle Glenn said he thinks they struck up a friendship when his nephew was a teenager, so maybe around 16 or so. And I spoke to another person who used to be close with the Wartmans and knew the gunman when he was a child. We also agreed not to name them because they're also concerned about upsetting Paul. But they did say they remembered the friendship starting between a young Gabriel Wartman and an older Tom. And they said something interesting about an early sort of turning point, that when these two met, it was when Wartman was, and I'll quote here, starting to go into the other side of the world, like the not-so-good part and realizing probably there are easier ways to make a dollar than to work hard for it, end quote. So Sarah, it's been really tough for us at times to make sense of this connection that the two men had for many reasons, but over the course of our investigation, we've talked to several people who've been able to shed some light on what it was about. When I asked Glenn about it, he put it pretty simply. It came down to business. Do you know why he and Tom remained such good friends for so long? Well... They had crooked dealings together. But why, I'm curious, why do you think that they were such good friends? Because there was such an age difference there and sort of an odd friendship, right? Very odd. But they appreciate each other's brains and crookedness. So it doesn't sound like Glenn is talking about apartment buildings and the rental business. What did he mean by crooked dealings? Essentially, he meant smuggling cigarettes and alcohol. Glenn told us his nephew made a lot of money from illegal cigarettes over the years. In court documents related to the shootings, police said one of the gunman's other uncles told them Wartman put himself through school by smuggling tobacco and alcohol from Maine with Tom. And Glenn said the gunman was obsessed with making maximum profit anywhere he could, even from family. You know how cheap he was? I was on cigarettes. I was home visiting from Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And I said, Gabriel, can I have a pack of your cigarettes? He said, sure. He charged me however much he wanted for the cigarettes. My mother said, for God's sakes, Gabriel, that's your uncle. You're going to charge him for cigarettes you got for next to nothing in the States? He still charged me. He chuckled. 
Whenever he was in the wrong, he chuckled, had a sheepish grin on his face. He knew he was wrong, but he wouldn't admit it. It was more than just business. This was really quite a meaningful friendship between Tom and Wartman. Glenn said Tom was even at Wartman's grandmother's funeral. Wartman would have been around 28 years old when Doris Wartman died in 1997. My mother died, and Gabriel invited him with all family that were going to eat afterwards and invited Tom Evans. He was um, a lowlife. But he made a big impression. Oh, yeah. Anybody that did something wrong impressed Gabriel. Gabriel was the same way. Sarah, everyone you and I have spoken with about this agrees the friendship between these two men was significant. Tom was a pivotal force in the gunman's life. Exactly. When we got all of these court documents about the lawsuit and we got Tom's will, we also tried to track down people who knew Tom. And that's how I met Joe Cartwright. He was a close friend of Tom's who lived in the same Aberdeen Street apartment building. But when I called him, he wanted to be clear he did not have a relationship with the gunman. I did work for him, like I've known him for 20 years, but I only knew him 15 years ago, right? right? Like, I haven't I haven't heard or known anything of him in the last, since Tom died. Right, okay. The, the, the final, that final thing was him trying to sell all the properties and everything. Like Wartman, Joe met Tom when he was around 15 or 16 years old, when he needed a place to live. Tom offered up an apartment, and Joe said he helped with the maintenance around the buildings. He's a carpenter. Joe said Tom became the best friend he could ask for, a sort of father figure to him and to a couple of other young men, that he looked out for them. And that included the man he called Tom's protege. Yeah. Gabriel wouldn't have been Gabriel without Tom. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Yeah, he was more of a father to Gabriel than people know. The more Joe told me about Tom, the more similarities I saw between him and the gunman, or at least their behavior. For instance, he said Tom had money, lots of it, but he was quiet about it. I know he had some fishy people for friends, but... Oh, really? Wow. That comes with the territory of being a millionaire, I guess. He was a millionaire? As far as I know, he was. Why do you say that? Well, when you can watch the guy go into the bank and draw $250,000, it's pretty damn close to a millionaire to my, my aspect. Wow. The guy, had a, the guy had a 27-foot sailboat. He had a 1974 VW thing. He had two hydroplanes. <laughs> he had four-wheelers. He had skidoos. This doesn't sound anything like the gunman's affidavit detailing Tom's estate. It doesn't mention skidoos or four-wheelers, certainly not planes. It said there was virtually nothing in the bank. It did mention that boat, the one that apparently sold for $500. Joe said Tom and Wartman would often take the sailboat to the United States. They'd bring back alcohol in yellow jugs and sell it. He also thought they were selling contraband cigarettes, although he wasn't sure where those came from. Tom made sure that Joe was shielded from the darker parts of his life, kept him at a distance. And there was one thing Joe said to me that I thought was really interesting. Tom had hiding places in his apartment. He could go up and push a panel on his wall and it'd pop out and there'd be a secret hiding spot in there. You may remember in the very first episode, we said there were weapons hidden in secret compartments at the gunman's warehouse. 
The officer safety bulletin we talked about in recent episodes said police were told he kept guns behind the chimney. And the documents RCMP have filed in court about the shooting have several notes like this. There was a hidden compartment in a workbench in the warehouse, a false wall on the right side of the shed in Dartmouth. Police say the gunman's common-law partner told them there were false shelves in the bookcases at the cottage. Before I heard about the allegations that Tom had these hidden compartments, I asked Gary Clement what he thought of the reports about the gunman's hiding places. Gary is the former national director of the RCMP's Proceeds of Crime Division. You heard from him in the last episode. And he said those hidden compartments may be a sign that someone is collecting a lot of cash from criminal activity. Most criminals that are in making that kind of money, they uh, do carry out and will have hidden compartments because the, the biggest problem, the Achilles heel for most criminal organizations is the cash. Uh, you can't just take a bag full of cash today and drop it in a bank account because, uh, first of all, anything over $10,000 is going to be reported and there'll be a disclosure to FinTrack. So that's not going to happen. So oftentimes with criminal organizations today, you're seeing them uh, hiding their money in hidden compartments, even burying it in backyards and in, in garbage bags. I mean, that is reality because cash is the Achilles heel. So did the gunman learn about smuggling and installing secret compartments at home from Tom? Gary said the gunman seemed to have a lot more money than a denturist would. There were signals he may have been living beyond his means. When we spoke, I asked him generally what sort of things he'd look for to determine if someone was involved in money laundering or financial crime. And this is what he said. Well, generally what you're looking for is you, I mean, most businesses have a a ratio of what their profit margin should be. So you start looking at the individual. Is he living uh, beyond his lifestyle? Uh, Are the businesses legitimate or are they shell companies? Is he using, uh, he or she using nominees to hide their assets? In other words, uh, whether it be friends of the family, they put assets in their name, or whether it be individual friends or it can be girlfriend, boyfriend type thing. That made me think of the unusual sale of Northumberland Investments in 1996. According to Wartman, he bought it for just $100. It seems like a small price for a company like that to change hands. And I wonder whether it's true that Tom was no longer involved when his friend bought the company he started and then bought the building where he lived. We also had questions about this alleged smuggling operation Wartman and Tom seemed to be running and who else may have been involved. Who were these fishy people Joe remembered seeing at Tom's place? And if Wartman and Tom were really making the kind of money people believed they were making, Gary Clement said it's possible their operation could have been tied to something larger. From what we know, he was supposed to be involved in smuggling for many years. And that's a very strong indication he was making a lot of money in smuggling. The other thing that has to be realized, if he was doing that much uh, contraband smuggling, uh, it had to be done with with sanction of an organized crime group. You just can't be an entrepreneur and do this and get away with it. So, um, you know, that's why, could he have been associated to the bikers? There's a possibility, yes. There's a lot of money to be made, and organized crime isn't going to lose money having an entrepreneur out there carrying out criminal activity in their area. It's just not going to happen. 
can use an example. Um, I, I was involved in an, as an operator in 96 in a contraband smuggling operation between the United States and Canada. And it was an individual, but the individual allegedly was tied to the Genovese crime family. So it goes to show you that criminal, I mean, when you're, you're working at that level with that amount of money, there's usually a criminal organization behind you. We don't have anything proving that Tom Evans or Gabriel Wartman were tied to a larger criminal organization. Tom was convicted of a number of crimes over the years, but nothing related to organized crime or contraband tobacco. In October, we asked the RCMP a number of questions about Tom Evans and his relationship with the gunman. We asked them whether police believe they were involved in smuggling or any sort of gang activity, whether police were investigating the business relationship between these two men. We also asked about several of Tom's other friends and whether they were being investigated. The RCMP's emailed response didn't address the vast majority of our questions. They simply reiterated that this was part of their ongoing investigation and that no one else had been charged or arrested at the time. It was in December that Tom's name was finally released in court documents police filed after the shootings. Before that, his name was always redacted. We asked more questions about Tom in January, whether he or the gunmen were involved in organized crime or whether anyone was facing charges in this case. The RCMP responded to that by saying they would not be answering media questions about the case at this time. People have told us they found this relationship between the gunman and Tom to be odd because of the age difference. Tom seemed to have a lot of close relationships with much younger men and teenage boys. Taken with his criminal history and his reputation, we did question whether there was any sort of abuse going on in his relationship with Wartman. None of the people we've spoken to have said that there was. Wartman's Uncle Glenn said he wasn't aware of any abuse. Sarah, it's been a few people now with whom you and I have spoken who've said maybe Tom was a father figure to him. We've also heard from them that Wartman's relationship with his dad, Paul, had been strained since he was a kid. According to court documents, police say that one of the gunman's uncles told them Wartman had a difficult upbringing and that his mother and father were bizarre and that he was a strange little guy. Another witness who's quoted in these documents mentioned that Wartman was severely abused as a young boy, although it doesn't say by whom. Adrian, the man we mentioned earlier who was close with the Wartmans and first told us about Tom, said he remembers when the gunman was a little boy. He said Wartman's childhood appeared to be harsh. He doesn't recall seeing any physical abuse, but does remember Wartman being punished often, and that, quote, the punishment far exceeded the scope of what he had done wrong to deserve it. It's possible Tom may have entered Wartman's life at a time when he was looking for guidance and support, and losing Tom seems to have really affected him very deeply. Adrian remembers seeing a change in Wartman when Tom died. He told me that around the time it happened was the last time he saw Wartman and that there was something missing in his personality that used to be there before. And he said he wasn't the friendly, good-natured kid he remembered anymore. And Joe Cartwright said he noticed a change too. Not surprisingly, Joe said that Tom's death was devastating to him. And he thought Wartman also took it very hard. Every time before, it was, you, you seen the nice side of Gabriel. This time, you didn't see the nice side. He was very to the point, and get out of my way or I'm going to run you over. 
Well, the fact that everybody got cut out of everything, that's what everybody, nobody could understand. He kind of come out of nowhere, like, and took everything, was destroying stuff, throwing it away. You know, like, none of his family got anything. Nobody got nothing. He was like a one, he was like a three or four man wrecking crew, just come in and destroyed everything. So Wartman and Tom, I mean, that was a friendship that lasted about 25 years, half of Wartman's life. So it's not a surprise then that Tom's death would have had an impact. But the timing, it's the timing in relation to other things we've talked about in the last few episodes. And, you know, that's the interesting part. Tom died in November 2009, and Wartman was fighting the lawsuit against his estate until February 2010, when he sold the two apartment buildings. In March that year, Wartman had documents drafted to have his parents' names taken off the cottage property in port a And we don't know why he did that, but we've been told this started an argument between the gunman and his father that came to a head in June of 2010. Remember, in June, he was investigated for threatening to kill his parents. And in episode five, we also mentioned that Wartman loaned his uncle Glenn $165,000 in bridge financing in 2010 to help him buy a cottage in port a And this led to a dispute with Glenn that lasted years. 2010 was also the year Wartman found out about his younger brother, who was given up for adoption at birth. The next spring, someone who knew the gunman reported to Truro police that he was under a lot of stress and maybe having mental health issues, and they were concerned that he had weapons and that he said he wanted to kill a cop. We can't say that Tom's death was a cause for any of this, but it does seem like another significant event in his life. We don't know exactly how Tom died, but Joe was one of the people who found him at home. He thinks Tom had an aneurysm and he knew he was dying in the weeks before it happened. Fredericton police said they were called in to investigate a sudden death at his address, but there was no criminality involved. A death notice posted by Tom's family said he died suddenly after a surgery. We did try to reach his family to talk about him and his friendship with the gunman, but his nephew told us they would not be talking. Tom's death has a more tangible significance to this story, though, and this is the main reason we spent so much time trying to unravel their connection. The gunman took home more than $200,000 on the sale of those Fredericton apartment buildings in early 2010. Shortly after that, he bought more property in the Portapic area. And Wartman took home something else, arguably his most significant inheritance, Tom's guns, including one he used in the killing spree on April 18th and 19th, according to court documents. The Ruger Mini-14, a .223 caliber rifle, the same caliber weapon that Tom and the British soldiers were firing toward the Bible camp back in 1987. When the gunman was shot dead by police on April 19th, he was found with five weapons— one he stole from one of his last victims. Here's where the others came from. The Ruger Mini-14 was Tom's. It's been traced back to a gun shop in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the court documents say police determined it was in possession of another of Tom's friends in Fredericton when he died. This man told police that Wartman told him the rifle belonged to him and asked for it back. He said he wasn't sure who it belonged to, but it wasn't his, so he handed it over. And in an indirect way, the court documents show that police have traced more of the weapons used in the April shooting spree back to the gunman's relationship with Tom Evans. A mutual friend of theirs, a man who told police Tom introduced him to Wartman 25 or 30 years ago, 
He said he knew Tom and Wartman were in business together, but he didn't know what type of business. The court documents show that this man lives in Holton, Maine. He's been interviewed by the FBI several times and by the RCMP, too. His name is redacted from the documents. The gunman made frequent trips to Maine to see this friend. The documents say the friend told police Wartman often had things shipped to his address, and then he'd come and pick them up. The man said he didn't make a habit of opening these boxes, but he did open one. It contained a light bar, the same light bar the gunman installed on his mock police cruiser. Wartman would drive to Maine sometimes with a trailer to bring motorcycles back to Nova Scotia. He had free access to his friend's house in Holton with a key and the garage code, and the court documents show he crossed into Holton 15 times in the two years before the shooting spree. During one of these trips in April 2019, Wartman got a carbine from a gun show. And at the time, he made a couple of strange trips across the border. The Canada Border Services Agency told police that the gunman and his partner crossed into Maine on April 25, 2019. Two days later, he crossed back into New Brunswick alone at 2.33 p.m. and then returned to Maine just 13 minutes after that. The court documents provide no explanation for this. The gunman and his partner returned to Canada together on May 2nd. But police say they've been told this is when Wartman got the other firearm he used in the killing spree, a Colt law enforcement carbine, a semi-automatic weapon similar to what police use. RCMP say they were told Wartman had another man make the purchase for him at a gun show for $1,250 U.S. in cash. It was a private sale, meaning there was no paperwork, no background check. The court documents say the deal was quick and dirty. The gunman was staying with his friend in Holton at the time, according to the documents, and that friend told police he thought Wartman put the carbine in the truck bed cover on his truck. The other two guns used in the shooting spree were handguns. According to the documents, the gunman's friend from Holton told police that the two of them would shoot guns together doing target practice at a nearby quarry in Maine. He told the RCMP he gave Wartman a Ruger handgun at some point in the last five years as a sign of gratitude for doing some work at his property. The documents say he assumed Wartman could take a gun into Canada and never questioned how he would get it home. One of the guns used in the April shooting spree was a Ruger P89 pistol traced to an owner in Maine. The other handgun police found was a Glock 23 pistol sourced to a gun shop in Maine. And Wartman's friend said it was stolen from him at least three years ago. According to the court documents, he told the FBI that two of his guns went missing in the last several years. He told RCMP that Wartman had taken two of his Glock handguns without his permission. According to the documents, police were told that when he confronted Wartman about the missing guns, Wartman said he needed them for protection. The court documents show police believe all three of these weapons were smuggled into Canada. After the shooting spree, police said in search warrant applications that they were looking for evidence of weapons trafficking, unauthorized importation of firearms, conspiracy to commit murder, and conspiracy to import firearms. No one has been charged with any of those crimes in this case as of January 2021. We asked the FBI if they could tell us anything about their investigation into this friend in Maine, and they told us to ask the RCMP. 
We promised you at the beginning of this episode that we would go back to the night of Saturday, April 18th in Portapique when the shootings began. Less than two hours before the massacre started, Leon Jodry sat in Greg and Jamie Blair's garage on Orchard Beach Drive. You might remember Greg and Jamie from episode one. They were two of the first people killed in Portapique, and their young boys escaped after they hid for hours. Leon said he spent that Saturday doing some work for people around the community to make a little extra cash. He did some work at Greg and Jamie's and the surrounding area, and then he went home, tired. Greg invited him for dinner. At first, Leon declined the offer, but then he changed his mind and stayed for socially distanced steak and potatoes. It was nice to spend some time, he said, but everyone was exhausted after a long day. Once the sun went down, they called it a night and Leon walked roughly a minute back to his place on Portapique Crescent. I shut my phone off, went and got in bed, and it was somewhere around 10 o'clock, 10 to 10. I can't remember what time I laid down. And uh, it's quiet in my house. All lights are out, blinds are shut, doors shut. And I heard what it sounded like. I couldn't confirm their gunshots. They sounded like gunshots. I don't fireworks, gunshots. I heard a pop, pop, like three seconds apart. That's all he remembers hearing before he fell asleep. The melatonin he took was kicking in, but it didn't last. He woke up at some point between 3.30 and 4 a.m., went downstairs to make coffee. He turned his phone on, and that's when the messages flooded in. Friends in nearby communities like Five Islands and Bass River saw the fires raging while he was asleep and were desperate to find out what was going on. Leon grabbed his keys and jumped in his truck. I go I could smell smoke. I know it's not wood smoke, I could smell. So I said, well, that's odd. So I said, I'll go to the end of the Portapique Beach Road and look up and down the coast, best fight and see a fire from. So I go out Orchard Beach Drive, so I go past Frank and Don's house. It's burnt, don't know that. It's four in the morning, I'm half asleep, haven't had my coffee yet. Dogs are home, lights are on, radio's on. Pulled my window down, made left on Portapique Beach Road, Drive down, I seen a flicker of flame past the graveyard. I said, fucking Gabriel's house. I seen the SWAT vehicle sitting there. I said, he burned his own house. Dumb son of a bitch. The realization of what happened chilled him to the bone. This wasn't some careless mistake. Leon is haunted every day by the fact that he was in his truck, about to rip through the neighborhood, panic rising not knowing at the time that he was passing several of his friends who'd been there lying dead for hours in the dark. I lost my friends. I woke up to a horror show. I'll never get over it. I shouldn't have been able to drive freely around my community, around murder sites. It's just inexcusable. At least they should have took me with them, told me, did something. They did nothing. In the next episode, we're going to pick up right where we left you as Leon grappled with what was happening. A neighbor called me and said, you're alive. I said, what are you talking about? He said, everybody's dead. I told him, you mean everybody? And he started going through the list, and that's when shock hit me. He had no idea he was about to be part of a critical turning point in the horror of that weekend. That's next time on 13 Hours. Thank you so much for joining us this week. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre is written and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Kress. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. 
editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Additional reporting for this episode by Global News reporters Brian Hill and Silas Brown and freelance producers Susan Allen and Brennan Leffler. Special thanks to Mike D'Souza, managing editor for the Global News Investigative Unit. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos, and a lengthy story about Tom Evans. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Kress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13 hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13 hours podcast. If you have a question about this episode or series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13 hours at curiouscast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes too. Thanks again for listening. Please join me in two weeks. On showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copy can on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner. All new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.